0: Well, guys, as I said, we're going we're gonna to try to finish up the book of James today. Um, so you can go ahead and turn there. We're in James chapter 5, the very last chapter of the epistle of James. And uh, last week we got through verse 9, and uh, what we've been seeing there was we saw that James was comforting the churches that he's writing to, these churches who were being persecuted. A lot of the poor people in these, in these early Christian churches were being persecuted by the rich. And James was comforting them, and he was comforting them with the return of Christ. What he, he emphasized the return of Christ several times. And one aspect of that was to give them the comfort of knowing that the judge was going to come and make everything right. And that's what we saw last week. So now, let's jump right into verse 10 and 11. And here we're going to see James. He's still, he's still speaking to the churches, and we didn't quite finish this, but we're going to do it right now real quick. Um, but he's still encouraging them to be faithful under their persecution and to be patient. And that's what we're going to see here. He's going to point them to the prophets of old as some examples. Uh, I'll read verse 10 and 11. It says, As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. And so here, James tells them to look at the prophets of old, these prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, um, referring to the prophets of the Old Testament scriptures, and he's saying, look at the lives of, of these guys and let them be examples to you, examples of patience and endurance in the faith, you know, and... So I just thought if we actually wanted to do this, just like these churches were being called to do it, where would we, where would we go? Like what examples would we go to to look for some who are faithful? If we're struggling under hardships and, and maybe some hard things that the Lord has asked us to do, where would we go to see some examples that we can relate to? And I could hear that I don't think there's any better place to turn to than what many people call the hall of faith, which is from Hebrews 11. And in Hebrews chapter 11, the writer there is just giving example, example, example after example of, of faithful, not only prophets, but just faithful godly men and faithfully godly women are listed there as well, of just people who um, conquered their sin and did great things in the name of the Lord um, by faith. And so that's what you can see if, you, if you'll um, turn to... Welcome, everybody. Hey, you doing? So that's what you can see there in Hebrews chapter 11, if you'll turn there, and if you're looking for some encouragement in the faith, turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and see all these lists of godly men, godly prophets, and even godly women who, who honored the Lord and were faithful through hardships. And so all, a lot of these things that were written of, the, the good and the bad, of many of God's people in the past were written for our benefit, we can see from where, they, from where they fell and stumbled and fell short, and we can, we can learn from their faithfulness. And we can see and in, in, in from the accounts of their lives how God honors um, the faithful. But here, so there's a good place for you guys if you want to turn there to Hebrews chapter 11, I guess in your own time. But here in our text in James chapter 5, verse 11, that's where we are today, um, James chapter 5. In James chapter 5, James singles out Job. James James singles out one man as an example, and he picks Job. And for all of us who know the the story of Job, um, we know that he is a very fitting example of somebody who endured. Um, We don't know the exact timelines of of Job's suffering, but when you read the book of Job, you see that Job lost just about everything that someone in this life can lose. He lost his family, his riches, his land— the love of his wife, it even seemed. As his wife asked him at, at one point, why don't you just curse God and die, she said. So there's an example of somebody who did not maintain the faith, uh, but then you have Job who had said that he didn't sin with his mouth and all these hard shifts that came upon him. Um, he did not lose the faith. And, and even Job is a good example for us because Job wasn't perfect. If you read the book of Job, several times God called him to the carpet saying, like, basically, Job, be careful, Job, who are you to question me in some of these circumstances, but if you finish the book, Job, Job maintains his faith, and when God rebukes him, he does what he should, he should do, and it even says at one point, like he covers his mouth, he says, I've spoken too soon, you know, who is I to answer to the Lord? So Job um, is a very good example of somebody who maintained um, and persevered um, very faithfully. Um, So let's let's go and let's transition into here, which is where I really want to get into, is these last verses in in verse 12. And you can even see there in verse 12 as James is also transitioning right here into the end of his letter. Uh, Right there in verse 12 he says, but above all my brethren. So here he's gonna kind of, he's almost gonna highlight, I think, some of his main points and some of the main things that these churches are to take away from. And so for us, I think this is really a good place for us as well to finish this book and really see some of the main points that Job is, uh, that James has been focusing on. Uh, so let me read verse 12 for us. He says, But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. And for any of you who may have, re- may have, may have uh, recognized it, James is nearly quoting here um, his divine brother. If you remember from, from Jesus' teachings from the Sermon on the Mount, he's, he's, he's probably, having heard this teaching, is basically repeating it for us here. Um, and if you, want, if you just keep your eyes on verse 12 that I just read, I'll read what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, maybe see if you can see some of the similarities because they're definitely there. I'll read what Jesus said in Matthew 5. He said, Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make in oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this is of evil. Um, so we see a lot of the similarities there, that, that they're, both, they're both warning against making these vows. Um, they're both, um, you can see that they're both warning against these different kinds of vows that people were making. And he said that you should be able, when you speak, to let your yes be yes and your no be no. You shouldn't need to swear. You shouldn't need to make an oath on top of what you're stating to people. Um, but I think, that it's, I think that we need to get in um, to more precisely what exactly is it that James and Jesus are, are forbidding? Um, because the question arises, are, is James and Jesus teaching that we're not allowed to witness or take an oath in court? You know, because it's required in court to take an oath many times when you're sworn in. Is he saying that we can't take vows? in our wedding ceremonies? Would they be forbidding these types of things? And I don't believe that they would be. Um, I don't think that this is necessarily a a complete universal restriction of any type of oath. And and I think I can say that because in Hebrews, God himself takes an oath. In Hebrews 6, he swears by himself, right? So there's an example of, of God himself doing it. And then we also have Paul. Many times, calling God as his witness. We saw it one time in Second Corinthians already um, where he called God, God as his witness when he was defending his ministry, um, saying that God is his witness of, of how um, faithful he's been. And I just have a couple more examples if you just want to write them down. Galatians 1.20, Paul seems to swear by God in 1 Thessalonians 2.5 as well. So that, this isn't a, a complete universal restriction of all types of oaths. Um, I think James and Jesus are addressing a more specific issue. And I think this one will be worth for you guys to turn to. If you guys will turn to Matthew chapter 23. I think Jesus brings up what exactly was happening in Judaism and what these early Jews were doing um, with these oaths that they were making. And this is what I think that James and Jesus are probably more specifically addressing. And we see it in Matthew Chapter 23, in verses 16 and following, um, I'll read it if, if most of you guys are there. Matthew 23:16 says this, Jesus says, Woe to you blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears both by the throne of God, and by him who sits upon it. So, in short, I think what was happening were these Jews were basically, um, they would basically swear by, by objects of different authorities which by, which by they were hoping that they could um, avoid these, whatever they were saying to be binding upon them. Right? So if they were saying something that wasn't totally truthful, they may swear by something of a, of, of a low value. Maybe they'd swear just by the gold in the temple, but not by the temple itself. You know? um, and if they were really meant something, if they were saying something that they knew was really truthful and they wanted people to believe it, they'd swear by God himself right? because they knew, okay, I'm not afraid that, you know, that God would judge me for this. So I think what they were doing, and Jesus is, is condemning them here by that, saying you know, to, to swear by anything Eventually winds up to to swear by either him who sanctified that thing or by him who dwells in that thing, and basically you're swearing by God Himself, right? So at the end of the day, no matter we shouldn't be swearing you shouldn't have to swear by these things. Whatever you say, you're saying before God, right? I think that's what um, James and Jesus are, or more specifically addressing here when they're condemning these types of um, swearing. And this is how A.T. Robertson, A.T. Robertson, just a, a great Greek scholar, this is how he put it. He said he thinks that the Jews, they basically had learned how to split hairs on the subject of profanity. They were trying to, to w- make wiggle room so that they could profane God's name by, by swearing falsely is what they were doing. They were trying to avoid God's judgment, and what they were really doing was taking God's name in vain when they did this. And, so, that's what, and that's what, so for us, I think what we can take away from this is I don't think that we necessarily swear by differing. We don't have this system that we haven't developed this type of system. Um, but I think we can take away from this. And, you know, as I said, this is James summing up his letter. You know, what did he say? What were the words that he used there? He said, above all, my brethren, right, above all, I just wrote a whole letter, above all, remember these last things. And what does he give to us again? Another sin of the tongue. Right? Because our our mouths can so easily um, flow statements and declarations and, you know, all types of things can come out of our mouths very easily. But we must remember, just as James reminds us in Christ himself, that on Judgment Day, Jesus said that every careless word will be called into judgment on that day. And so James ends his letter again where we've seen, I mean, he almost had a whole chapter devoted to the tongue and the sins of the tongue. This is one thing that he reminds us of again uh, that is of great importance. You know, and, and we as Christians, we worship him who is truth. Jesus says that he is the truth, and he's our Lord. And so when we speak, everything we speak should be under the lordship of Christ, and we should speak with truth. Our yeses should be yes, or our noes should be no. We shouldn't need to go beyond that. Um, so let's go on. Let's go on to verse 13. Where here, James is going to pick up another topic. Like I said, he's summing up his letter here. He's he's reiterating some things, but this is almost a a, a new topic in a way in verse 13 and following. He's going to give the churches some direction on prayer is what we're about to look at. And he's mentioned it before, but now he's really going to give us some explanation. He's going to explain uh, different reasons for prayer, different ways to pray, And he's basically going to talk about how we all, as the body of Christ, are responsible to do this. Um, I'm going to read 13 through 15. It says, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Right? So let's, let's look first at verse 13 that I started off with there and see how the Christian is to pray in these different circumstances um, which are given. In the first circumstance James gives us there, he says, Is anyone among you suffering? He says, if anyone's suffering, if they are, they should pray. And so this word for suffering that he starts off with is just a very, very general word. Any type of trouble, any type of hardship, if anyone's suffering, the instruction is to therefore pray. Our first thought, our first inclination should be to to take it to the Lord. That's what he's saying. And so this word is very general. As I said, it it could encapsulate everything that these churches were going through. They were being persecuted. They were, as we'll see, some are sick. He said that many were poor. Some were even um, dying, it seemed, of starvation, maybe, from the persecutions. So they had much suffering, and James tells them what they should do is to pray. And so that should likewise be our reaction. And because he, just, he simply says to pray here, I just thought I might add, um, maybe as a note, what types of prayer would James be um, directing these churches to pray? If these churches are under all these different kinds of suffering, what specifically, what kinds of prayer should they be saying? Um, and as I mentioned, I think James kind of spoke to it already in the first chapter when he talked about trials. And he said, when we go through trials, what is it that we should be asking the Lord for? Does anybody remember? When any of you suffer trials, wisdom, exactly. I think that's going to be um, the main thing that we should be asking God for in our suffering: is for godly wisdom, wisdom that's going to give us a, a proper perspective of our suffering. Um, I think, is we're going to be tempted a lot of times to only pray to get out of the suffering, uh, but it doesn't seem like a lot of the times in this. Um, James gave us examples of people who had to suffer for long periods of time. Job, for instance, I mean, he suffered for a long, but in the whole time he was in prayer, talking to God. Um, and the Lord delivered him. But I think, so this would be the type of prayer that God's pointing us to, a prayer of God, give me wisdom. Help me understand the suffering rightly. Help me not to um, think wrongly of you, God, for allowing this or to think wrongly of others, but to persevere. Give me a a godly wisdom so that I'll persevere properly through the suffering. Right, so I, I think that could be what James is speaking of there. The next thing he says this is a little, little easier. He says, is anyone cheerful? If anyone is cheerful, he should sing praises. Mm-hmm. He should sing praises. So this is just another type of communication with God. It's, all, it's almost taken the form of a prayer here because he's including it right with all of these prayers. Prayer is simply our communication with God, and we can do that through singing a praise to him. So we had suffering. You need to pray. Mm-hmm. And just as Ecclesiastes says, there's an appointed time for everything. There's a time to weep. If there's suffering, you can weep and you can pray to God. And there's a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn, there's a time to dance. And so there is a time to be cheerful. When you're cheerful, you don't have to necessarily um, feel condemned or feel bad for that. If God has blessed your soul with, with cheer, He wants you to return praises. And this should be the Christian reaction when we are cheerful. And for examples of that, we all know there's no better place to turn than the psalms. It, it wouldn't take you long just to flip through the psalms to find um, David probably just with his mouth. And I think this is hard sometimes. It may be easy in congregational singing, you know, when we're being led in worship and the music's there and everybody else is joining in and you kind of blend in and it's easy to sing praise to God. But maybe when you're by yourself, is it hard to vocalize prayer or praise to God with your lips? Um, I think it can be, um, it can be hard to muster up the humbleness to praise God, as He should be praised. Um, I would just, I just mentioned Psalm 33:1 here. If you just wanted to find somewhere to start, um, this is what David says in Psalm 33:1. He says, "Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the liar." Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song and play skillfully with a shout of joy. And so this type of praising isn't just a, the quiet whisper. I mean, he is shouting praises to God, which, which is another thing maybe hard for us to do, Maybe be afraid somebody will hear. But this is, this, is, this is biblical Christianity, somebody who has the faith to praise God and not be afraid of, of somebody hearing. And, and for all the Lord, for everything he's done for us, um, I think, it, like, I, I see it as a sign of, of not being humble enough. To not be able to praise God is, is just probably a sign of pride, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that we can't do this. Um, so let, let's, let's go on there. In verse 14, what we're going to see here is more specific instruction on how we are to pray, not in the circumstance of cheerfulness this time, but in the very specific um, circumstance of sickness. James is going to speak to, to one who is sick. Verse 14, he says, Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And so I don't know if it, if it seems controversial to you or not, but in throughout the church, this has been a very controversial verse. Um, it's drawn a lot of ink from biblical commentators. The uh, many uh, had to read a, read a lot about this text, and they had a lot to say because there's been a lot of variation on um, the meaning of the oil here and, and things like that. Um, but let me, let me just address what some of the usual questions are that, that arise from this text, and then, and then I'll try to address them really quickly. Number one, as I kind of alluded to, why is oil being used in this prayer? That's one of the questions. Why is oil being used, and what's the significance of it? Another question, um, what is the necessity of the oil? If the oil isn't used, is the prayer going to be answered? Is that going to affect um, the, the prayer of the elders here? And then uh, verse 15 that I didn't read yet, forgive me, you can probably look at it real quickly. Verse 15 is going to, is going to seem to speak of a very uh, a certainty of this prayer being answered. Right? So all of these are kind of um, tough questions that you have to deal with when reading this verse. Um, And and first I want to point out here in verse 14 that as we see that it says that this sick, it just says that uh, the word sick, which is a general term for being sick, but I think we can understand from this verse that the fact that they have to call for the elders to them is speaking of a very uh, severe sickness, probably like a bedridden sickness where They're not coming to church, you know, for worship, and there they can just ask for the elders to come to them. They have to literally have the elders come to them um, because they're probably bedridden. So we see that this instruction here is for a a very serious situation. A bedridden person in the first century would probably be life-threatening. So we're talking about a very serious um, situation here. And the second thing that that we noticed already, and I mentioned, is that the, as the elders are to pray over this person, they're to anoint them with oil. It says, in the name of the in the name of the Lord. So why the oil? Well, throughout the Old Testament, oil was used ceremonially. It was, a, it, was a, it was used ceremonially to symbolize the fact that God was anointing someone. Um, our text uses the word anointing, doesn't it? Um, they have the program anointing him with oil. right So the same language is used um, as in the Old Testament. Uh, God would, would set people apart or set things apart for his, his service, and he would do it with oil. And this was like a symbol of, of that happening. And I'm just going to read a very good uh, little clip here of this happening that addresses a wide scope of how this oil was used. It's from Exodus 30 verse 25. Exodus 30, verse 25, the instructions given to Moses for the temple. It says, I'll read it quickly. He says, you shall make of these a holy anointing oil, a perfume mixture, the work of a perfumer, and it shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense. And you shall anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and the laver and its stand. And you shall consecrate them, so that they will be most holy, and whatever touches them shall be holy. And then you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, that they may be ministers as priests to me. And you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, This shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. Okay, so here we see, and this is how it's generally used is, that this oil is brought in to symbolize God setting apart something for his service. In the temple, he set apart the temple and all the tools that the priest had to use in it, and he set apart his priests. He set apart his priests, Aaron's and his sons, um, to service in the temple. And so I think this is the kind of the clue for us is how maybe or why maybe James would have been bringing this oil into the new covenant and this is, this is the language that um, Curtis Vaughn uses in his commentary. He says that this anointing with oil was intended to be an aid to faith. It was to be an aid to the faith of, I would say, not only of the person who's sick and receiving the oil, but also an, uh, an aid for the elders as well who are praying for the sick. It's to aid their faith. Uh, because what this is, it's a very, it's a very vivid visual aid, and it's just, it, and it's symbolizing the work that God himself is doing, God himself is doing. God, as he set apart and consecrated people in the old covenant for his work, I think this is probably what he's doing in, in this new covenant. If you have a person who is, who is, as we're all priests of God, right, in the new covenant, we're all made a holy priesthood. Um, if somebody is sick and bedridden, he's, he's, he's consecrating them again back to their service, Right, he's consecrating. He's setting them apart, back to service, back to the service in God's kingdom. In um, the, in the, in the, the oil is just a visual aid. I think in, in this consecration, it's it's very, uh, it's almost like a ceremony is happening, and that's why I said it's not. You don't see the oil being used in, in every instance always, um, because it's a very serious um, event when somebody is bedridden, um, about to die, and it takes the oil here. Uh, so let's ask the other question. What's the necessity of the oil? Uh, must we have it? Say the, say the elders show up and they don't have the oil. Should you, should you worry that, that, that the prayer maybe is not going to get answered? I think this is an easy question to answer um, simply because we have so many examples in the Bible of healings taking place, miraculous healings, with no oil. Right? We see there's just many examples of it. I put a three. Peter raised a lame beggar who's been, who's been lame his entire life without oil. Um, Peter's shadow would heal as he walked by. Um, that was done without oil. And Paul raised even a crippled man um, by merely talking to him. It was, it was done without oil. Um, so I think we can safely say that it, it's not the oil. As I said, I think the oil is a symbol. Of, of what God is doing in this ceremony, um, to set someone apart for, for his service. And even in the text, the main verb that we see in the text is not the putting on of the oil. The main verb of the sentence is the praying. That's the main verb of this sentence, and that's what James is talking about in this entire section here, is praying. I know that we make a lot of oil. That seems to be what most of the writing is about in the commentaries, about this oil, but the main point of the text is about this praying. And uh, the oil is just a participle that, that is, 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 is put alongside the main verb. So the main verb is always the praying in this text. And then you'll see, if you look down at fifth, verse 15, what is it that's credited for the restoration of the health? Is it the oil or is it the prayer? You know, it's the prayer and faith that's, that's honored. Mm-hmm. By the Lord, so I don't think that oil is necessary. It's it, 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 it's it's helpful. It has it has its reason. It's a it's a tangible aid. Yes, sir. In, in your study, I haven't mm-hmm. read the commentaries on James yet. Does anybody say that the oil is representative of the Holy Spirit? No, they don't. Which for me, in my first, the first thing I thought was is representative. And I don't know where we got that from. Okay. That that's actually even as I'm reading this, I'm thinking like,
1: the Holy
0: that's what I know, That's what I normally had associated it with, right? Okay. And I think a lot of the charismatic groups that, that use it, somehow they make that connection. Right. But, and that's why I read that whole section there of the Old Testament where most of your references are going to be referencing the, the setting apart and the consecrating in the temple. And that's about the only time you see the oil is for that consecration. Okay. right? So I was surprised myself that there wasn't a real direct correlation made with the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, but anytime healing's being done, of course, the Spirit is there. Well, yeah, there wasn't for me. That's a good question, because I thought the same thing. I have one in my study Bible, though. It has a, about the Holy Spirit? Yeah, read it. Yeah, read it for yeah, us. Read it. Us. What's it say? Uh, okay, I so was just talking about anointing with oil was medicinal or sacramental, but it is best seen as a symbol representing the healing power of the Holy Spirit to come upon the sick person. So there's no reference to, like, where he would be linking that with the Holy Spirit or anything? Uh, well, they go back, I think, Exodus 28.41. Exodus 28. Okay. And then it gives a few others in the New Testament. What was it, Exodus what? 2841. We'll read it because I was actually interested about this myself. 2841? hmm You shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him, and you shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. So that's Thank pretty much exactly. talking about God's use and service. Right. Which exactly, yeah. It's almost like repeating what we read. Um, so, yeah, I think the spear would, would take part in that setting apart of someone, of course. Um, it's just not explicitly ever linked with the, the third person there. So I'm, but, yeah, I, I can see it. And naturally, I think we all think that for one reason or another, right? Um, okay, so let's look at the last aspect of this. Let's look at the certainty of this healing. Is this healing guaranteed to take place? I, I've kind of always already given away um, how I, what I think about that. Um, But verse 15 seems to be unconditional because verse 15 says, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And so that's kind of raised some questions too as far as he doesn't seem to add any real clear-cut conditions here. Although he does, he says it must be offered in faith, but he says if you offer in faith, it will restore the one who is sick. And so for me, I just look back at the... You know, if I have a verse that sounds um, not strange to me, but, but something that almost is different than what I've, um, I've been viewing um, a reality, um, I just go back and look at the whole New Testament overall. And I, and I think there's too many examples for us of seeing people who are sick and who do not receive healing um, to, be, to think that this is, this is um, always an unconditional promise that any time you pray for healing in this way, it's going to be answered by God. Um, it'll always be answered, of course, but maybe not in the way that we're asking. Um, I have a couple examples here because I think Paul is a good example to use because Paul, of course, I think we can we can say very confidently, had the gift of healing. Paul had miraculous gifts of healing in the early church, and uh, Paul himself had a what he called a thorn in the flesh. Mm-hmm. We don't all know exactly what that meant, but he couldn't even... Um, God did not re- answer that request. Mm-hmm. God told him his, his grace is sufficient for him, mm-hmm. and he did not heal him. Um, another example is from Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 20, where Paul left his friend Trophimus sick in Miletus.
1: Mm-hmm. He
0: had to leave his friend sick. Why didn't Paul just bring the other elders and pray for him, right? I think it, it, it's, not, it's not guaranteed. Um, he, was, he did not heal Epaphroditus. In Philippians chapter 2, the reference is made to Epaphroditus, who says almost died.
1: Um,
0: and then he tells Timothy to drink a little wine for his ailments, right? Timothy has some sort of stomach problem, it sounded like, and um, Paul basically references some, a, a medicinal um, answer. He doesn't tell him to call for the elders and use the oil. And then we have another clue from the, this actual text, I think, that is helpful, And I think this may be what we really need to keep in mind any time we're praying for healing, not only in this instance of somebody who is really, really sick and the elders are called and the oil is used. um, We always need to keep this aspect in mind. Because it says here in verse 14, it says that when the prayer and oil are administered, it says that they're to be administered in the name of the Lord. And so I think it's helpful to kind of um, understand how the Bible uses this phrase. And the name of the Lord always carries with it more than just the meaning that um, when we pray, we're praying with the authority of the Lord, that, that we're praying um, in the Lord's name. It means that as well. We're praying in the authority of the Lord. But it also means that we're praying in, the, in accordance with his will. When we pray in the name of the Lord, it, it's insinuated that we're praying according to God's will. And so, yeah, our prayer it, we're, we're praying that, we, that we're hoping that it's God's will. That's usually our hope that it would be God's will that we're healed. But it's not always. As I've said, there's examples where he doesn't heal people, even when Paul asked. He said he asked three times he asked the Lord, and and it was the Lord's will to heal him. He had a reason for it. He gave the reason, he said, to keep him from being prideful. So that was gracious of God to tell him the reason he wasn't healed. That would help us a lot, right? No, I'm keeping you sick because I want you to learn this or that. Thank you, Lord. Like, okay, I'm going to, you know but we don't, we don't hear from the Lord like, like Paul did. Um, but back to my point of making sure that when we pray, we are, when we pray in the name of the Lord, we have to make sure that we're submitting ourselves to the Lord's authority and to his will, and we must be willing to, to do that. And we see this, and, and I like the, the phrase here, and, and this might be a good reference if you're taking notes, it's 1 John 5.14, because when we're praying, um, how much confidence should we have that this is going to work? That's that's usually my, you know, the the internal struggle is, Lord, how how certain can I be of your will as I'm praying for whatever it is? And listen to the language of 1 John 5:14. It says, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Right? So it's always in in accordance with God's will is the the factor of, of how much confidence we should have in our prayers being answered. And so I think... Um, if you're trying to figure out maybe, if you're praying for whatever it is, whether it's sickness or anything else, if you're trying to determine how confident should you be that God's going to answer your prayer, I think you need to try to determine the will of God first. And how can we be most certain of what God's will is in in, in any situation? How can we gain the most confidence of God's will? That's kind of an open-ended question there. How would we determine God's will? about anything. Through
1: the Word,
0: Through the word, exactly. So what I'm saying is, if something is clear in the text, if God has spoken something and promised something, you can be very confident, you can be 100% confident, actually, that that, that prayer will be answered. If God has promised it, He will answer it. And I think we have a great example. We, we saw a great example um, in chapter 1, and we mentioned it earlier. He says if you're in a trial and if you ask God for wisdom, he will give it to you. And he he, he grants that without any uncertain terms, without any qualifications. If you ask God for wisdom, he will give it to you. And so that's a great promise. That you can ask God for certainty that he will answer. So I always like to know how certain I can be of God's will. So yes, if you you are sure that God promises something in his word, he will 100% answer that prayer. It, and like I said, he doesn't always guarantee um, sickness to be answered, uh, the healing of sickness. So we can't always be 100% um, certain of his, of his will in that area. Okay? Um, let's look at the last aspect here, the last stipulation here um, in verse 15. It says this. It says that the, I'm going to read verse 15 again. It says, the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. So this is kind of interesting because here, James ties in the the committing of sins with someone's sickness. And and this shouldn't seem too strange because we almost address this issue every time we do the Lord's Supper. Because in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says a very similar thing. Paul said that the reason some of those in the church in Corinth were sick and dying was because they had sinned, was because they were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And so there is a way in which our sins can affect. It is possible that our sinning can affect our our physical health. And, And before we go, as much as I want to go quickly through this, I have to point out that what does it say here in the text? It says, if he has committed sins. That's a very big if in this text. Because we also know, as I mentioned the story of Job, sickness is not always related to sin, right? You gotta, we gotta have to think that and take that in mind, too. Job was sick for a completely different reason.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: God, uh, God allowed Job to be sick for a completely different reason than for discipline. Um, but it definitely is possible. And so when a sickness like this comes upon you, um, it could be a, an issue of sin. And the text seems to say that um, if, if you if – you, Offer up this prayer in faith, which of course would include a repentant um, faith, as all faith is, that your sin li- uh, likewise will be forgiven, as well as the healing. Um, and we don't have much time. We've actually only got about seven minutes, and this is really where I wanted to camp out. So let's see how quickly we can go through this. Um, let's read verses 16 through 18. It says, "Therefore confess your sins one to another." And pray for one another, so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Um, So let me just sum this up as best as I can and concisely as I can. Um, because I wish just as a church we could hang out here more. And maybe if I have a chance some other time to speak, maybe I'll, I'll really hone in on this, because I think as a church, as a young church, James is saying and, and speaking of things that should be happening in these churches. And what is he saying that should be happening? There should be confession of sin one to another, you know. There should be confession of sin, he says. There should be praying for each other. Um, and then he, And then he encourages it by saying that, the effective prayer um, of a righteous man can accomplish much. And then he mentions Elijah. And he says for any of us who may be doubting, you know, as maybe we've cast doubt maybe on the effectiveness of some of our prayers, um, he, he's trying to strengthen our faith in prayer by giving the example of Elijah. He says he had a nature just like ours. Elijah was a fallen, sinful man, just like us. He wasn't sinless. It says, and he prayed fervently. And God answered his prayers, and it didn't even rain on the earth for three and a half years as a result of his prayer. Mm-hmm. So he's saying, don't think that it's only for the super-Christians. Don't think, you know, maybe as we read the earlier text where the elders would be called for a certain situation. Don't think, oh, God only hears the elders' prayers.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Elijah was a man just like us, and God answered his prayers and did a miracle, in fact, a great miracle.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so I just want us to, in this text, I just want us to see that this should be a normal aspect of, of Christianity and of, of the church. These things should be happening, confessions of sins one to another, and I would say especially if you sin specifically against someone, I think we can confess sins in generally, but we should be confessing. If we sinned against a brother or a sister, uh, we should take it to them so that they can do what it says? So that, the, so that we can pray for one another, so that we'll be healed. Maybe even here it's kind of ambiguous, I think, and people go back and forth. It could even just be speaking of a spiritual restoration. If you sin against a brother and in your fellowship between a brothers um, broken or messed up, I'll tell you what will reconcile it is if you go to that brother or sister and say, I've sinned against you in this way, please forgive me. And I can tell you there's nothing better. I've done it here at this church and the last time I did it with a brother. There's nothing better than when you do that with a brother and he says, Brother, of course I forgive you of course you're forgiven. Don't worry about it. Don't. I mean, it's just beautiful thing. And that's how we should be. We should be ready to forgive.
1: You
0: know what I mean? Just prepare yourself right now when somebody comes to you saying they did something horrible or said something horrible about you that really hurts you. Be ready to forgive. And it's just going to open up in our church just almost a um, a good habit and a good practice of these things which we want our relationships to be good. I mean, we're supposed to be here serving the Lord. If we're... If we sin against each other, we've spoken against each other like James has warned against so many times. It's not going to be a healthy situation. You know, we need to be practicing this. So, so I'm encouraging us to do that. If you sin against a brother, seek them out. Confess your sins. And, then when, and when that's done, if somebody confesses a sin to you, pray for them. The text says to pray for them, you know, so that they'll be healed. Um, and that would be, be a beautiful thing for our church. Um, lastly, the last two verses in James here, he's telling us to to give prayers for one another, and he's going to give another reason that we should do that. And I I would say that the reason we should be doing this is because the seriousness of of sin, um, because an erring sinner, somebody who is in sin, without the intervention of the church, could go right down the, the very deadly chain that James mentioned in chapter 1, verse 15. To flip back over to James chapter 1, verse 15. This will be the last verse that we read, really, um, reference. James 1, 15 says, Then when lust has conceived, when lust gives birth, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Right? So this is the seriousness of sin. And let me read verse 19 and 20. Um, To end off the book here, he says, My brethren, if anyone among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And so this is the seriousness of the issue. Sin leads to death. And it's not just the responsibility of our elders to be intervening into people's lives, and to be helping them, and that's what it is. You're helping them in this way. You're saving their soul from death. And you're covering over a whole multitude of sins. And sins always have other consequences and, and reach out to other areas of life and just mess up everything. And so this is, this is a very important thing. Um, this is a very good reason for us to get out of our comfort zones and reach into somebody's life and say, Brother, like, I, I'm seeing a sin in this area. It seems like you're sinning in this area. Um, bring them back, help them um, for the good of our church. You know, for the glory of God, this is what we should be doing. If we don't do this, sin is going to run rampant in our church. If we're not confessing sin, if we're not praying for each other, and we're not we're not um, exhorting each other and rebuking them if necessary. Sin is going to run rampant in our church, and there's going to be division, and it's going to it's going to be horrible, right? So I wish I could spend a whole class on this just because of the importance. And just because of how much I want to see this happening in my own life and in our church is that we need to be holding each other accountable, we need to be praying for each other, and we need to be willing to um, exhort and rebuke each other when sin's present. Right? Because the whole point of the book of James is is what is James trying to to talk these people into. The whole point is he's trying to exhort the churches to have a, a true, genuine faith, a real faith. We can, we can come and pretend all we want. You know, we can come to church and say all the right things, but if we're not um, living in obedience to the word of Christ, it's not real. It won't be a true church. And I know that's what we all want. So the exhortation in, in James is just so many commands is because he wants the church to glorify God, and he wants the people to have a genuine faith. And so, in short, that's the point. That's the point of this text. And so I pray that we'll, we, too, will work it out, as James called these churches, too, Amen? Amen. Thanks. It's It's been a privilege to do this class, and you guys have been great. Good questions and everything. Amen. Amen. Yeah, let's go to worship. We've got about four minutes.